2: From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hope
3: you're having a great holiday weekend, 4th of July weekend. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you don't get a chance to listen on a normal basis, if you like this, and I know you will, hopefully you'll do it on a regular basis. And order the podcast at BrianKilmeadShow.com or Spotify, wherever you get, or iTunes, or iHeart. Wherever you want to get a podcast, you'll be able to get this, and it's going extremely well with those numbers, as well as people that listen on a regular basis. We have a chance to bring back some of our more impactful interviews that stand the test of time. A little bit later, you'll hear from Governor Ron DeSantis. Had a chance to spend a day with him. Of course, he calls into the show a lot, too. Meanwhile, coming up now is John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, who wrote a book called On the House, and he was able to spend some time with us. I think he was on a couple of times. And he, of course, uh, talks about his journey in his book, Uh, to an unknown uh, state senator, congressman, to a congressman, to working his way up the ladder to being the Speaker of the House, and then the tough time he had trying to wrestle his cats and his Republicans to listen to him. So here's a little of John Boehner on his book, his life, and his career. I now
0: pass this gavel and the sacred trust that goes with it to the new Speaker. God bless you, Speaker Boehner. We
4: gather here today at a time of great challenges. Hard work and tough decisions will be required of the 112th Congress. No longer can we fall short. No longer can we kick the can down the road. The people voted to end business as usual, and today we begin to carry out their instructions.
3: Well, what happened from there makes a great book uh, on the House, a Washington memoir. Look back and and look forward uh, from that moment of uh, the life of John Boehner. Uh, It is now raging up and just permanently camped around the top spot on Amazon. It's surely going to break out probably number one in the New York Times list. Uh, John Boehner, welcome back to The Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: Brian, it's good to be with you, and it's been a while since I've been on your radio show.
3: I know. It's been too long. Uh, we did get a chance to speak on television yesterday as your book debuted. First off, uh, on that moment, can you reflect on that moment again? Do you remember everything about it?
4: Which moment are we talking about?
3: When I bumped in, and I bumped in with you, accepting the gavel from Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House.
4: <laughs> oh, yes. I remember it uh, very vividly. It was, uh, it was a great day.
3: Um, but-
4: and, I, and I was doing my best to not to be my teary-eyed self, and I was holding it together real well, and I looked uh, to my left uh, on the Republican side of the aisle, and I saw my three best buddies, Tom Latham from Iowa and Richard Burr from North Carolina and Saxby Chambles from Georgia, both of them in the Senate, and uh, that was it. Tears started.
3: Before I get to the news of the day, everyone keeps talking about the news of the day and the, and the this more sensational part of your book. I want to go through what brought you there. And first off, growing up. How did growing up in a big family uh, affect who you became? Because it's easy, I imagine, I grew up with three, but you grew up with how many brothers and sisters?
4: Uh, 12 of us.
3: So how did, you, how did you, did you sense early on to stand out you had to do something special?
4: No, not at all I, I was just a regular kid uh second oldest of this uh, clan of twelve and uh, uh you know i was just uh, I was just one of them. probably learned more growing up at my dad's bar, but you know growing up in a big family, you have to learn to get along with each other, get things done together as a family uh, growing up in my dad's bar, I learned two critical lessons uh one is the art of being able to disagree without being disagreeable right? Uh, because that drunk at the end of the bar was going to be sitting there all night. you didn't want to fight with him. And the other uh, lesson I learned was you had to deal with every jackass who walked in the door. Uh, Trust me, those two lessons probably did more to help me as speaker than anything else.
3: It of interesting, too, because uh, my dad and my grandfather owned uh, a bar, and we did every time there was a turnover, every time it was a big event, we would always be in there. And whether it had the little evil Knievel guy that would jump over the piles of rubble or beer cans— Uh, You always try to blend in and the age was 18 back then. So you really, he had a younger crowd and it was a, it was a fascinating time. You get some real personalities behind the bar and in front of the bar and those end up being friends for your life, right?
4: Oh yeah. You know, I started going to my dad's bar when I was about, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Every Saturday morning, I went down to the bar to mop floors, do dishes, uh, uh, cook, uh, wash dishes. I clean out the garbage cans, uh, wash the windows. Uh, all for $2 a day. Not $2 an hour, but $2 for the day. It was a l- real lesson.
3: Right, and when your older brother went to the military, I think you felt like so you had to take control. When your parents used to go in front of the television relax, at the end of the day, you would be the one saying, clean this up, clean that up, and always oh, a sense of command. You also say the reason why you never got over- overwhelmed by the chaos on the floor is because you grew up with a lot of noise in your house, <laughs> in your family. But it was uh, the first local job that you got uh, in politics was what?
4: I was a township trustee in, in Westchester, Ohio. Uh, I was president of our homeowners association. Uh, I was in a packaging and plastics business, owned a sales and marketing company, and, uh, and got involved in our homeowners association. And I became president in 1980 and suggested to that, him that we as a homeowners association I'd take a more active community, active role in our community. Instead of just our own neighborhood, and the board looked around and said, "That's a great idea. Go ahead." <laughs> and then one thing led to another, and next thing you know, I'm running for township trustee. I never thought I'd run for any public office in my life, uh, but uh, you know, I got in this race, and if I was going to be in the race, I certainly wasn't going to lose. And I knocked on every door in our township, every single door. Uh, lost uh, about 10 or 15 pounds in the process, uh, but it was uh, it was a real great experience. And then I went on to serve in the state house and to serve 25 years in the Congress.
3: Pretty amazing, too. You mentioned you were a heavy kid early on, uh, or when you were younger, and part smoking I helped get the weight off, too. Right? <laughs>
4: yeah, I was 273 pounds at one point. Uh, I was about 20 years old, and uh, and I decided, all right, uh, I was an ex-jock. I, I was eating like I was a jock, uh, but I wasn't doing all the uh, the working out that I used to do. And uh, so, anyway, I decided I was going to eat three reasonable meals a day. And uh, in between meals, I thought I was hungry. I'd have a cigarette. And, uh, anyway, it uh, I, I gave up one bad habit for another.
3: Right. So, you got in shape. You also mentioned, I just want to touch on this, uh, because I did a book, The Games Do Can. I talked about all the successful people who don't become pros but played sports. And without sports, they don't become who they were. And I actually did Danny Hastert as a wrestling coach. You mentioned him. Sadly, he was was disgraced. But you mentioned Jerry Faust, a very well-known coach, a Moeller legend, high school legend, maybe the best high school coach ever. And he went on to Notre Dame where he got uh, national notoriety, didn't have that success. But even though John Boehner wasn't the next incursion of Herschel Walker, he made a huge uh, impression on your life. And he continued even after your play. Can you tell us the last time you spoke to him and what he meant to you early on?
4: Well, Coach Faust uh, was uh, like a lot of coaches I had. I played every team sport there was growing up. And uh, when I got to Muller High School, uh, Faust Faust understood that uh, while he wanted to win football games, uh, he also knew he had a responsibility to to take these young men who were playing for him and turn them into men. And... uh, And so uh, it wasn't just about football. I mean, he was on us all day every day uh, about everything it took uh, to take a young man and turn him into a man man of Mueller.
3: So it made a a, a huge impression, and that's why you're a fighter. You don't get your feelings hurt easy. If you're a football coach, if you're a football player that's been yelled at a lot, it's really going to be hard to rattle you because of an article or because uh, somebody on the other side of the aisle. So as you move forward in your career – You make a dent, and you make it clear you want to be among leadership. And one of the first things you did is realize they got this congressional bank. You want to have direct deposit, but you want to use your bank. They say, no, no, that's not the way it works, Congressman. We have a bank here in Congress. And then you suddenly realize there's a little bit of a problem going on here, and I don't care if my colleagues like me or not. I'm going to unearth it.
4: Well, you know, I wasn't some great big sleuth. I didn't want an accountant at the House Bank. I didn't know about any problems in the House Bank, but they told me I couldn't get paid if I didn't have an account at the House Bank. And so, anyway, I had an account at the House Bank. And, uh, you know, about nine months later, I was reading USA Today. You know, it was in the lower left-hand column of page six or something uh, about the general accounting office doing their annual audit of the House Bank. And they found out that in the... Uh, 1990, there were 8,226 bounce checks, and I thought to myself, "What the hell is that all about?" And so I began to ask a few of the senior members about this, and I suddenly see people's faces turn them white. Well, you know, I can smell I can smell BS a mile away, and so I got a group of my fellow freshmen uh, Republicans, and uh, you know, we demanded some answers. And uh, to make long story short. Uh, uh, they didn't want to have to deal with this. They've been around for 168 years. Uh, but uh, after four days of uh, uh, seven freshman Republicans doing radio, TV, uh, doing the print journalist, uh, they closed the House bank. And uh, uh, and we were not very popular people, I can tell you that.
3: But it would let people know that you're going to be a force. And to, to not go over the whole book now, because on the House, we're talking to Speaker Boehner. Uh, It talks about how you got there, because a lot of people didn't know how you got there, including me. Hemmer probably did, because he knew you're from Ohio. Uh, But I want to go to a moment uh, that really changed. And you end up emerging with this guy named Newt Gingrich. And do you remember this moment?
5: With faith and with friendship and the deepest respect, you are now my speaker. And let the great debate begin. I now have the high honor and distinct privilege to present to the House of Representatives our new speaker, the gentleman from Georgia, Newt Gingrich.
3: Where were you, and when did you realize this brilliant guy who's your friend probably was not going to be lasting long on the top spot?
4: Well, just before that moment when uh, Dick Eppart gave uh, the gavel to uh, to Newt Gingrich, uh, I had actually... Uh, on behalf of the Republican members, had nominated uh, Newt uh, to be uh, our candidate for speaker. It was uh, was one of the high moments of uh, my early parts of my career. Uh, But my relationship with Gingrich went back to uh, right after I was elected. And I was a member of the Conservative Opportunity Society. I worked closely with Gingrich and others uh, to advance uh, conservative principles. And uh, somewhere, I guess it was probably around 1993 or so, I went to Newt and said, "Listen, I think uh, you got a real shot at being Speaker. Uh, how about if I put some people together that you can meet with every so often, and I kind of go over the things you need to do to be Speaker?" And, um, and it turned out to be uh, about five of us that uh, would meet with Newt from time to time, uh, and uh, and give him a little advice. And uh, and so I was really proud of uh, of Newt. Uh, he was a wonderful man. You know, we all have assets. We all have liabilities. Uh, while Newt was brilliant, uh, sometimes working with him was like working next to a tornado. You never knew what was going to fly out of Newt and hit you upside the head. Uh, but uh, it was a great experience.
3: You told him, get better ties. Hey, Newt, you got to smile with people when you see them. They're <laughs> looking at you in the eye. You're looking straight ahead. You got to start working. <laughs> and he's the one who called you up and said, John, when it looked like things were going south and he couldn't hold on to position, what do you think I should do? You go, I think you got a leaf. And he called you up again. He goes, I think you got to leave. <laughs> it was just no, time. I,
4: I said, uh, no, I said to Newt, I said, Newt, that's right after the 1998 election. I said, Newt, I just think that you've led the team as far as you can lead it. I just don't think you're going to have the votes in January to get elected speaker. And, uh, you know, after two days of this, uh, he made, I think, the right decision and uh, and moved on.
3: So, um, speaker Boehner, you, you wanted to, so you become a speaker, but one thing you did say about that time, you wish you did not go ahead with the impeachment of Bill Clinton.
4: Yeah, I, I think looking back, uh, we all learned a lesson that, uh, uh, while I think he, he perjured himself, uh, I think he violated the law. I think it was an impeachable offense, uh, but the American people didn't support, uh, the impeachment and, uh, and I think we all learned a lesson At the end of the day, it's the people who rule the Congress uh, and not the Congress ruling the people.
3: Absolutely. So that goes forward. Now, how does that relate to today with Nancy Pelosi? You say on some level, unless I'm misinterpreting the book, that you don't think she should have pursued the impeachment and she knew it on Donald Trump when it came to the Iranian phone call.
4: Uh, That is correct. She she tried to keep them from going there. If you go back and look at... uh, uh, early 2017, mid-2017, uh, she tried to hold this off because she knew uh, impeachment uh, was, was certainly not popular. And uh, But at the end of the day, a uh, lesson that uh, all leaders learn is that a leader without followers is simply a man taking a walk, and in this case, a woman taking a walk. And so uh, her members uh, were running in a different direction, and she had no choice but to jump out in front of them and, uh, and allow uh, the impeachment to, to go ahead.
3: Do you also believe that Donald Trump is probably the only one you know that could have withstand that type of blizzard of information and attacks and investigation and stress?
4: Oh yeah, no question he He, he could put up with it. he did. Um, you know there's a lot of things that uh, uh, the President Trump did that I was very proud of, and uh, certainly his policies that he put in place were good and uh, and his ability to withstand this withering assault, and not just from the Justice Department, the FBI. Uh, but the left-wing media uh, were, were, frankly, even worse.
3: Here's a little of one of the moments that will stand out, for obviously for me, for you, and for the country. Cut 31.
4: Americans uh, rightly uh, feel uh, uneasy about the economic conditions uh, here at home, worried about their own economic security and uh, probably wondering uh, about uh, uh, their tax dollars being put at risk. I think all of us realize that a collapse in our financial markets would be felt by <coughs> families, seniors, and small businesses around our country. Uh, their paychecks would shrink.
3: This would lead uh, This would lead to you deciding, along with Democrats and led by the president, George W. Bush, a man you still call your friend, uh, to come up with TARP who was entirely paid back. But the bitterness you felt towards your own Republicans because they pushed back and said we should not be bailing out the banks. Is that a moment that you think about a lot back in 2008?
4: Well, I don't think about it a lot, but I, trust me, I never had one doubt that I was doing the right thing for the country and still don't. Uh, we were very close to uh, every credit card being shut down, every ATM being shut down, uh, Americans being locked out of their jobs and locked, uh, locked out of their money as well. It was a very uh, tense and tragic moment. And, uh, uh, and when my Republican colleagues wouldn't come along and, and help uh, and help pass TARP, I was, I was very disappointed.
3: And you were angry. Uh, John Boehner, we're just scratching the surface on your great book on the House, a Washington memoir. Appreciate it. Congratulations on it. We've got to have you back and finish up this story.
2: He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: Hey, welcome back, everyone. Hope you're having a fantastic uh, Fourth of July weekend, whatever you're doing. I'm sure it's better than last year, right? Considering last year everyone was shut down, wondering we're going to open up, thinking about the election, and are you going to get uh, COVID-19? Well, during the year, there was a lot of books that were released, and this was a good year to release books, and one of which was Speaker John Boehner. He kind of went away. Not the most high-profile speaker you can get. Remember, he's replaced by Paul Ryan. He had a lot of problems with his tea party. In fact, some of the quotes are hysterical for Jim Jordan and Jason Chaffetz. It's kind of simple And for uh, about Tom DeLay. Here's what he wrote about Tom DeLay, the former majority leader. Delay and I were never close. Matter of fact, half the stab wounds in my back are from him. Um, (laughs) uh, Here's what John Boehner said about uh, Jason Chaffetz and Jim Jordan. Uh, F. Jordan, F. Chaffetz, they're both – can I say that? I don't think I can say that. They're both bad words. Yeah, they're both. Jason Chaffetz is here, and he is not. And Jim Jordan I had a chance to meet, and he never was. He just didn't want to listen to John Boehner and other people. Believe it or not, they just like Trump a lot.
2: From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
3: So I had a chance to talk to the hottest politician in America right now, Governor Ron DeSantis. Defiant in many ways, tackling the toughest decision any politician will make. And I think more than war, it's a, because the war is really a president, and some Congress people vote. I think this pandemic, because you have 50 people with 50 different ways of handling health uh, health and their consequences. What he did is opened up quick and clo- he closed up quick he, and he uh, opened up quick all in the month of April. And he took a lot of heat for it. And there were deaths. And But the thing is, A lot of people lived, and the suicide was down, and the kids got to school, and now the businesses are up, and you can go 100% into restaurants. And people wear masks when when a store requires it. If not, it's up to you. I like that idea. I love that idea. I hate what's happened to New York. But I wanted to sit down with Governor Ron DeSantis, who's not yet 43. He is somebody who came out of nowhere, was in the Little League World Series where he was a superstar, ends up being so good in baseball and his grades so great, he actually got an offer to go to Yale, and he went never been to the Northeast before, where he graduated magna cum laude and went from a four-year starter and captain of Yale to Harvard Law School and then instead of going to a big firm, joined the Navy as an officer and went to Iraq and then Gitmo. Then out of nowhere, he joins U.S. Congress, and now he's on the cusp of being maybe a leading contender to be the next president. Here's a little from my sit-down and my day with Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. So governor, what was this day like compared to all the others? I see you with your binder. We started your house and your family. Then it's over to your office, and then it's uh, multiple stops. They're
6: yeah, pretty typical five stops. Pretty today. typical day, and I think you got the full treatment of the kids running around, which is very normal for us. And being able to do some of the things that we've done is um, is pretty much what we've been doing day in day out. And you got to see some neat stuff. I mean, we were able to go do a senior vaccination site in one of our senior communities, and then we you saw the first Johnson and Johnson so, uh, shots that the state of Florida has administered with our law enforcement personnel. So it's exciting. I feel like we accomplished a lot. Then back to the- the office and then the, what you really want to do is get back home yeah family understanding how hard your job is and how how long sometimes your days are they do and uh, you remember when i asked madison this morning what are we going to do this weekend strawberry festival so she's really excited about that going to go on some carnival rides be able to let her eat some junk food and so we're looking forward to doing that which is a
3: lot of pressure on uh mrs desantis yes. and casey I was well for the challenge it's hard to be around you be able to cover you for the last few years and not see uh, and hear the buzz about you. And you see the polls with you now 53 percent approval rating, the uh, Mason-Dixon poll, and you see the uh, what you've done in the state, uh, and then you see the way you received at CPAC. The buzz is that if Donald Trump doesn't run, that uh, Governor DeSantis, even though he's not even 50 yet, he's about, <laughs> not even 45, is going to try to be President DeSantis.
6: Well, look, I, I think that we're in 2021. I mean, I think the reason why people have appreciated what I'm doing is because I'm here leading every day. I mean, I am I believe you get into office, you have an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. You can't be afraid of your own shadow. you got to get out and lead. And that means when things may not be always as popular, like when we put the kids in school, it's very controversial. It's obviously the right thing to do when we made sure we were protecting these small businesses. So that's kind of what I'm focused on. We're going to have a re-election in 2022. But I think that one of the things I would tell folks when they're, because there's always speculation that people have, we're in a lot of fights right now. And I mean, I think that that'll sort it out. Obviously, people are going to be looking to see what, what Donald Trump's going to do. But man, we've got big tech. We've got lawlessness. We have election integrity, and so that's what we're just going to focus on every day. But I think the fact that some folks are are appreciative of what I was doing, it really is a lesson to other elected officials. Don't go around and try to posture and do stuff. Get things done. I think that's the hunger right now with Republican voters.
3: Right on your report card. Yeah. But uh, the Secretary of State, who is also a a big supporter of the president, and I think it's vice versa, is Mike Pompeo. And he said the other night, yeah, I'm considering it. So would you say that that's, that's something I could put in? Ron DeSantis could say that you're considering it? in 2024? Yeah, especially if you win again in 2022?
6: Yeah, I wouldn't say that because it's just its so premature to even have the discussion. I got a job to do right now. We work hard every day for it. I'm going to have a great election uh, fight in 2022. Uh, Trust me, we we had a tough one in 18. I think we're going to have a great record to be able to do it. But that's really what, what you got to be focused on. And I know there's folks, oh, three, four years out are always doing this. But just think about in 2016 cycle. If we were sitting here in 2013, no one would have said Donald Trump. Everyone had all these other ideas about what was going to happen. So these things, there's this a lifetime in politics. Get as much done as you can in the here and now. That's what I'm going to be doing, and we're going to run through the tape.
3: And in 2013, no one would
6: have said Ron DeSantis, "Oh, he's going to be president someday." Would they have? Or in the back of your mind, were you well, saying just that? my college baseball coach, as you remember? He had uh, Yale for whatever reason. He thought so. Uh, so that. Yeah. but look, I mean, th- this state. I mean, I think you got to see a little bit of it, and I know you know you've been down here a lot we got some great people in this state. This is an honor and a privilege to be the governor of a great state, a state where things are happening, a state that people want to come to, a state that's really doing it right and is a dynamic place to be. And there's other states in this country that have seen better days, quite mm-hmm. frankly. There's other states where uh, you don't have the same excitement as you do every day here in the state of Florida. I,
3: I 100% see that. I understand that, especially there's so much focus on elections in Florida for sometimes the the problems you've had, but not last time. The people continue to talk about... Uh, the division in the party, that you have uh, Liz Cheney, who came out and who's got a lot of respect as a conservative, said, you know, Donald Trump, we have to move on from Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy, I don't believe, feels uh, that way at all. Um, And I know how the president felt. Do you see a divide in your party?
6: Not with grassroots voters. I mean, I think that if you look what the president accomplished, people appreciate those accomplishments. Donald Trump upset a lot of kind of stale orthodoxies in the party, and he was right to do it. I mean, we are never going to go back to the failed Republican establishment of yesteryear. Our voters don't want that. We don't want open borders. We don't want weakness against China, Um, and we want to make sure that we're using our military to support our country, but not getting involved in these quagmires. And so I think that Trump reset the dynamic, and I think you have 90 percent support for that. Some of these people may not like Trump personally, but what they're trying to do is use opposition to Trump. Not just against him personally. They want his agenda to no longer be. They want to go back to the old establishment. That is not happening.
3: If the the president, who you guys are friends with, play golf together, and he's a big supporter of yours, if he says to you, what do you think I should do, Ron? Do you think I should
6: run again? What would you tell him? You know, I would tell him, honestly, uh, just take care of yourself for a while. All this stuff shakes out. And then as we get into past 2022, we'll see what what looks like and then make your decision at that time. But I think it would be a mistake for him to say, I'm not going to do it right now. But also they think it would be a mistake to say, I'm definitely because things change and you got to figure out where you're going to be.
3: Now, uh, there's a couple of fights you took on, and one was big tech. And you expressed to me your concern about what happened, jarred almost, would you say. you Basically, took down a, they took down a president's ability to communicate on social media. That alarmed the president of Mexico. Yeah. That alarmed Angela Merkel. Sure. And then they took down a competitor of Twitter, and it's not back yet in parlor. What What are you thinking about as governor of Florida, a supporter of the president, when they had this type of reach and they decided these
6: competitors decided to unite to shut down? Well, we cannot allow our country to be run by leftist oligarchs in Silicon Valley. It's as simple as that. They cannot control speech. They should not be able to control commerce. And so we have unveiled a series of big tech reforms that are the strongest anywhere in the country. If you deplatform a candidate, you're getting fined $100,000 a day. If you deplatform or censor an individual Floridian, They have the ability to potentially sue you under our Unfair and Deceptive Trade Practices Act. So can our state attorney general can go after big tech. And then your privacy. They take all your data privacy. They make all this money. You should have the ability to opt out of that. Just because you buy a phone, that doesn't mean they should be able to track you every minute of the day.
3: Homestead, Florida, is the home for illegal immigrants who cross the border, and we have no place to put them. It became a lightning rod and people protesting against President Trump. Well, I don't know if you've heard about the border, but it's being overrun again. What, is that going to
6: hit Florida? The I think it's going to hit the whole country. And just think about well, Homestead
3: this. in particular, right? You have no control over that No, facility? no, it's a
6: federal facility, and, and, and those folks are there or not. And look, my view is Trump had the right policy. The Remain in Mexico worked. Biden is opening the border. And just think how hypocritical this. He tells the average American, you're a Neanderthal if you want to live in an open state. He threatened to quarantine my state of Florida because so many people wanted to travel here. But yet, he will let these people go across the border, even people that have COVID, they're releasing into the communities. It's entirely reckless, it's terrible policy, and it is going to cause problems in our country, and it's being done for ideological reasons. No one can look at this substantively and say that these movements are better than what Trump, Trump got control of the border. It wasn't just the wall, it was also some of the policy. So we're made in Mexico, Governor Lamont happens
3: to be a Democrat, And he basically has the same policy as Texas. Is he in the Yeah,
6: no, well, exactly. But that's the thing. COVID is used by the corporate media to uh, hit Republicans and people in the other party of them. And the Democrats, they always treat much better. That's just what they've done throughout the whole time in COVID. And even to this day, they will act like some of these states with the top death rates in the country Did well. And then they'll look at Florida, one of the oldest states in the country. Our death rate is below the national average. Our senior mortality for COVID per capita is less than 40 other states. We've put seniors first. We protected our nursing homes. We didn't send sick patients to nursing homes. We prevented hospitals from sending sick patients to nursing homes. And it makes a difference in saving lives.
3: I I know you don't really know Governor... Cuomo personally that well but I'm sure you've seen the turmoil with the nursing homes and with the personal accusations of sexual harassment what's your reaction to what's erupting in New York this is a guy that was looked at as the anti-Trump he could communicate Robert De Niro thinks
6: he's cool well look I think on the nursing home issues that the Audrey governor had to face we were given models saying you're gonna have no hospital beds in five days Now those were fake flawed models they were basically one step up from astrology I rejected the models and said we're not sending the patients back to nursing them. But other governors were under pressure to to clear out all these hospital beds. So that's what motivated it. I don't think it was motivated. I think it was more of a panic decision. But that of any decision any governor makes, whether you protected the nursing homes or didn't, was the most significant in terms of mortality. You could save the most lives by protecting the nursing homes, and you would obviously cost a lot of lives if you made the nursing homes hotbeds for transmission. You
3: also had the Javits Center. You're probably not familiar with that. But they also had the, the, the hospital ship. But you know what you just did? You explained What do you think about the decision by a chief executive not to explain their mindset and to not be candid about the numbers?
6: Well, I think what happens is, particularly the the corporate press, they're very partisan. They're going to treat a governor like that much different than they'll treat somebody who is a Republican or somebody that supports Trump. And I think that you can get away with some of that. And then now, for whatever reason, there's the knives are out. But for most of that, we knew the problems with the nursing homes months ago in a lot of these states. We knew the policies were flawed, but it wasn't something that they really wanted to delve into because it would have upset the narrative.
3: Well, lastly, uh, just to review just where you've come from, this middle-class kid from the middle of uh, Florida, from Tampa, Dunedin, uh, who loves baseball, ends up at Yale, goes to Harvard Law School, uh, then goes and fights in Iraq, joins the military, and then finds himself in the U.S. Congress, and now finds himself governor of the fastest-growing state maybe in the country and third-most populous, and I would
6: argue the best country in the world. Did you predict this? No. Um, you know, I would have wanted to play baseball as long as I could, um, but you know, it is what it is. And so, but I think that it's the type of thing where I always just believed in working hard, and good things will happen. And so, not everything's gone my way in life, but if you keep working hard, and I just I tell young people. Look, work hard, keep knocking on the door. It may not open the first time, but it will open, and it may not necessarily be the path that you initially thought, but you can still do a lot of great things. And so I think I've been blessed with a strong work ethic, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've been able to be successful. How how proud are your parents of what you've become? Well, I think they're proud. I mean, I remember when um, I got on the plane to go to college. I had never really been to New England in my life coming from West Central Florida. I had jean shorts on and a T-shirt. Like, I was Florida man showing up in an Ivy League school, and I think it was almost like something we wouldn't have thought of at the time. And so I think that they were, they were really proud of that. And then I think they appreciated that I was a self-starter, and they knew that, that I was going to work hard and I was going to do them proud. Yeah, but the problem is you don't have a car and you don't have your own house. That's right. Well we so when you when you become governors, obviously the Governor's mansion, we have young kids, so we don't have an ability to go back and forth a lot of places, so we did sell our home in Ponte Vedra Beach, and then because you have the security, they drive you and so I sold my F150 King Ranch, my wife sold her Ford Explorer and uh, and it's odd because from the moment I won the election, We've had security uh, on us since. So that's November of 2018. Right. And when I was a congressman, you're just a part. You can do whatever, whatever you want. The governor is just a different environment. And our kids, I don't know that they know any different at this point because Madison's four, Mason's going to be three at the end of the month, and Mamie's right. one. And so it's just interesting. Going to be interesting to watch how they develop. In kind of a bubble environment. Right. I would say they're on the right track from what I saw. (laughs) So you got to see them in that big punch bowl, which they haven't really done that in in about a year and a half. And so that was a pretty interesting thing when they were in the governor's mansion. So, uh,
3: Governor, thanks for the day, your average work day. But I know you, you're going to go
6: back to the office and keep working. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming down. People around here love what you guys are doing. And you guys, you guys got a great reception. So good on you. Thanks so much, Governor.
3: I always love talking to the governor. I never knew he was as personable as he is. One thing people told me is uh, he's really efficient. He's got the military background, the sports background, great family man. Uh, He's been in business and in Congress. Uh, He's really well equipped to go to the next step, but he's not that personable. I I really feel differently. I just don't feel he's got that salesman-y attitude, which I think is fine with Americans right now. He wants to hear what they have to say, and if it's a legitimate point, he's going to be open to it. He doesn't really kowtow to people uh, who have a lot of money. He doesn't really care. In fact, I know some people that were part of his uh, push to get some money and run for governor when it was a, when it was a distant prospect that he didn't even get the Republican nomination. And they pulled him aside, and they go, Ron, you're going to need more money. He's like, okay, but I got two little kids. I'm not going to be running around the country. And they ended up doing some fundraisers there, and he put the work in, and he wins by one point. And now he's in about the sixty percent approval rating. I'll give you something else about Ron DeSantis. He's also stood he stood up to sixty minutes when they wrongly accused him of giving his buddies uh, the vaccine first, which is an old story now because we all could get it. Uh, it wasn't true. He flooded certain areas where the most people were, and he used Publix. Why do he use Publix? Not because they were supportive, because they're the biggest supermarket in the state, and they volunteered to move forward on it. Their hope was people come to their place, get the vaccine, they're going to go shopping there, and they said fine. No money in it. So Ron DeSantis stood up to 60 minutes. He stood up to the detractors. He stood up for Donald Trump. I think he's perfectly equipped to be the favorite. Now, change quick. Favorite uh, come uh, 2024. That's if Donald Trump doesn't run. I don't see him ever running against Donald Trump. But coming up next, uh, after the governor, uh, we're going to take a look at a place in Florida. It's called Little Havana. In the 1960s, when Fidel Castro took over, he wanted to get rid of all the so-called successful people, the doctors and the lawyers and the scientists, so they quickly laced together some refs and they got out. And guess what? They formed Little Havana in America and worked their way up. That story more when we come back on this special holiday edition of The Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: This is The Brian Kilmeade Show information you want truth you demand this is the brian kilmeade show
6: well little havana really was a neighborhood that began in the 1960s uh, here in miami uh, for cubans that were coming uh, from cuba uh, expelled by castro when he nationalized all the property when he was summarily without trial executing uh, political opponents of his uh, and we came to this country like many uh, people uh, wanting and seeking the American dream and made this incredible area that has you know, taken on this character and gets millions of tourists and visitors every year.
3: And that is uh, the mayor of Miami, uh, Suarez, and he had a chance to sit down. I had a chance to sit down and talk to him and get a tour of Little Havana, the most successful uh, immigrant group you're ever going to find in this country's history. They came in, even though they're professionals, doctors and lawyers. Uh, they said, well, okay, we'll pick up garbage, uh, we'll work in schools, we'll work as janitors, we'll be a roofer, uh, I'll work in construction because I want to establish myself in this free market economy and maybe work my way back to Cuba, but if not, I want to be an American. So get this, they held on to their culture and they embraced the country. It is indeed possible, the Italians, the Irish, so many other groups have done that, but maybe not quite as definitively as the Cubans did, and you could get that on Fox Nation. So you get that on Fox Nation, it'll be one of the brand new series, one of four. Thanks for listening to this holiday edition of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, don't forget, BrianKilmeyShow.com or the podcast. Everybody else is doing it.
2: From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox & Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. I'm
3: Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you're having a sensational holiday weekend. Have a chance to reflect back and stand with pride for the national anthem as we celebrate the birth of our great nation, and it is great. And I don't do that just to get everybody to go to Fox Nation and go What Made America Great series. Got four new ones. Uh, we go through uh, through the country and give you uh, a great American and and in, in, in uh, Ernest Hemingway, a great place in in Montauk, Long Island, and what it has to do with Teddy Roosevelt, as well as William McKinley, as well as this guy named George Washington. Uh, And we got some other special things like the Greenbrier uh, to focus on in Little Havana. But right now, I'd like to introduce you to Admiral William McRaven, one of the great American uh, commanders of his generation. Of course, he led, uh, was the commander of the bin Laden raid and so much more in his life. He had a best-selling book, uh, Make Your Bed. This is when he came on the show to talk about the hero code. Here's my interview with Admiral William McRaven.
7: Osama bin Laden was gone.
3: That was 10
7: years ago. Think about that. We delivered justice to bin Laden a decade ago, and we've stayed in Afghanistan for a decade since. Since then, our reasons for remaining in Afghanistan have become increasingly unclear.
3: Not according to many in the military, including uh, General Milley, who's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the the study done by Joe Dunford about the positives by staying in the area, even with a small presence. How does Admiral William McRaven feel about it? One of the most respected military men in the country, retired U.S. Navy uh, four-star admiral, author of of another great book, The Hero Code, Lessons Learned from Lives Well-Lived, which we're going to get into. But, Admiral, this news came out yesterday. It was not a big surprise Welcome back, and what do you think about the president's decision?
5: Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh, Great to join you. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, the the, uh, Biden administration came to the same conclusion that the Trump administration did, which is, you know, we're not going to be able to have a military solution to the problems in in Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, as a military leader, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to make sure your voice is heard. And I have it from very, very good sources that everybody from General Scott Miller, who is the ISAF commander— Uh, to General Frank McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, and, of course, Mark Milley and Secretary Austin, all four men who have extensive experience in Afghanistan had a chance to sit down and talk to the president and and express their concerns and lay out all the risks. So what I know is that the president absolutely understands the risks that he and the country are assuming by by leaving Afghanistan. Um, But he has made that decision. And I know from the military leaders I've talked to, uh, you know, we're a professional military. We're going to salute smartly and, and move out.
3: So now that you're retired, what does Admiral McRaven think about that? Since you know and your intelligence or a phone call away or a text away to find out what's really happening on the ground. And you know that uh, where the, the attack on 9-11 20 years ago came from. And, you know, there's al-Qaeda and ISIS presence there today and the Taliban's presence is increasing. And they haven't really had a uh, they haven't really had a change of mindset. Uh, they're Sharia law centric anti-women, and they're never going to reject al-Qaeda.
5: Yeah, so, I mean, remember the reason we went went into Afghanistan, of course, was to ensure that uh, al-Qaeda did not have a safe haven uh, in Afghanistan supported by the Taliban. So when you think about the last uh, 20 years, uh, we were successful in that aspect of the mission. No question about it. Uh, So now, if I'm a military leader and somebody says to me, look, here's the risks we're going to have to deal with. If we pull out of Afghanistan there will be a resurgent Taliban. Uh, we will have to be concerned about Al Qaeda coming back into safe uh, and establishing safe havens. I would tell them I can handle the Taliban safe haven issue. You give me the resources, give me the latitude to do my mission, and I will be able to have drones overhead. I will be able to have intelligence assets uh, on the ground. I will ensure that we have a quick re- uh, reaction uh, team available. I will ensure that we have a combat air patrol available. So I think we can manage the terrorism threat. And of course, The Taliban have never been an existential threat to the United States. The Taliban have—I mean, the al-Qaeda have been that threat that concerned us the most. So as we pull out the the 2,500 guys, and then I'm sure the allies will follow us, again, if I'm a commander and you're giving me the mission, I can find out a way to keep keep al-Qaeda at bay.
3: Where are you? Where's your base?
5: Yeah, well, again, you've got to negotiate that. But remember, nowadays— the, the drones that we have, and I won't go into the, into the exact specifics, but they've got a long dwell time, right? they had got a long dwell time, so you could base them at a number of places in the region and still set up in orbit to maintain a 24-hour coverage of a particular region. This is not out of the realm of the possible. In terms of the aircraft support, you know, you put a carrier battle group uh, in the, the Gulf of Oman, you've got the reach, uh, you can come up the air corridor in Pakistan. So there are ways to do this. now. Let me be clear to your audience. Are there risks? Oh, you're absolutely right. There are risks. Look at All Iraq. Things, what's that? Look at Iraq. we were yeah, back there again, in two I'm, years. You bet, and, and so I'm hoping, and, I, and my expectation is we have learned from Iraq, and so our ability to keep an eye on the movement in Afghanistan is gonna be critical. And again, I don't want your listeners to think that I don't think are risk's out there. You bet there are. Will there be a resurgent Taliban? There will. And I think the, uh, the Ghani government is going to have to ensure that the 350,000 Afghan national security forces that we trained are thinking about this and preparing to deal with the Taliban. Are there going to be threats to the women? There are. But, you know, when countries are under threat, uh, you know, they're just going to have to fight for, for their you know living standard that they want. They're going to have to fight for their democracy. They're going to have to fight for what they want. Uh, we can help them in that regard. But at the end of the day, the Afghans uh, are going to have to step up and do some of this. But I do think that there are risks involved in pulling out of Afghanistan. I don't, I don't question that at all. The intel summary uh, shows that. My point is if I'm a military commander and given the task of ensuring that al-Qaeda is no longer a threat or is not a threat coming out of Afghanistan, I think I can manage that if you give me the resources to do the job.
3: Uh... Yeah, I, I, you know, 2,000 guys. We have not lost a guy this year, thankfully, two guys last right. year. So it's not like it's a hot fight, and we're not looking to do the 70,000 that General Petraeus right. was asked to bring in. I was just going to read you Petraeus' comments. He said, I'm afraid that we're going to look back in two years from now and regret the decision. He goes on, I think we need to be really careful about the rhetoric because ending U.S. involvement in the endless war doesn't end the endless war, it just ends our involvement. I fear that this war is going to get worse. So I know you respect General yeah. David Petraeus.
5: Very much so. And and again, Brian, I, I would not dismiss his assessment at all. And I'm not saying that. Uh, as I said, the risks are out there. What I'm telling you is from a senior military standpoint, if, if a Mark Milley and a Lloyd Austin and, and Frank McKenzie and Scott Miller have the chance to sit down with our civilian leaders and say, Mr. President, here are the problems you're going to have to address. Here's what's going to happen if we leave. And the president makes that decision. Then again, as a military, we have an obligation to say, "Sir, we got it. You've heard our voice, and now let's move out and and do the best we can." And I know they will try to do that. Again, will it be easy? <laughs> no, it will not. Are uh, General Petraeus's concerns valid? You bet they are. But we're moving forward. Uh, you know, there, there's no point in looking back now. Let's look forward and figure out how to. Uh, Again, how to solve the problem. That's what we do in the military.
3: All right. So, General, you, you went out and um, make your bed was a bestseller, number one bestseller forever. Everyone's reading it. They, they kind of <laughs> sp- it spun off your commencement speech at the University of Texas. So you came out with the hero code. And it's not just about a bunch of great store military stories. It's about how to show values and integrity to kind of guide you through life. So you did it through telling stories, arguably the best way to do it. And di- different things that you try to get across. Number one, you talk about being humble. I'm going to just bring you to some of the stories, and we can kind of move through it to give people an idea of why this book is so special. You said be humble. You tell the story of being at a dinner party and looking across <laughs> and seeing this kind of quiet guy. Uh, he ends up being an astronaut, the last one to walk on the moon. But how did he hold himself?
5: Yeah, you know, I will tell you, uh, Brian. If folks like to make your bed, they're, they're going to love the Hero Code. Uh, it's kind of of the same sort of uh, construct. But this was remarkable. So, I mean, I, I go to this dinner party uh, and I'm sitting around the table and I'm chatting with this fellow for about an hour and a half. And, uh, and he's probably in his early 80s. He and his wife are there and they are just lovely. And I'm trying to, you know, kind of find out a little bit, bit about him. I find out he's in the Air Force. And I say, well, you yeah, know, my father was in the Air Force. My son was, is in the Air Force. And all he wants to do is talk about me and my family. He wants to know about my kids. He wants to know, you know, where my wife and I met and all. And, and it isn't until after the dinner party that uh, Roger Staubach, the uh, the Hall of Fame quarterback from the Dallas Cowboys, who was with us, comes up to me and he says, uh, hey, I see you were talking to Charlie. I said, yeah, yeah, seems like a real nice guy. And Staubach says, can you imagine that? And I said, what are you talking about, Roger? He said, can you imagine that? Can you imagine walking on the moon? And it then occurred to me, this was General Charles Duke, the youngest man ever to walk on the moon and never once in that hour and a half conversation did he mentioned that little tiny fact that he walked on the moon? But to your point, his humility did not come easy. You know, he comes back from the moon. He's a celebrity. He became a Christian. His wife became a Christian. He followed her, and he learned the value of humility. And today, he is just one of the gentlest, finest uh, men I've ever spent time with.
3: Another example of hope. You talk about a mission to free POWs, and by the time they got there for this mission, they had been moved. Uh, right. and you thought, wow, what a wasted mission. How does that play into hope?
5: Yeah, you know, I had the opportunity, I think, back in 2005 uh, to meet with the Sante Raiders, and, and of course, the great Texan uh, Ross Perot used to host uh, these guys every year. So uh, Sante was a POW camp. Uh, Green Beret went in to try to rescue these guys. As they get to the Sante camp, it turns out the North Vietnamese had moved the uh, the prisoners earlier, and the Green Beret come back, and and for years they thought – yeah, again, it was a failed mission until the POWs were released in 1975, and the story the POWs told was, you gave us hope. You gave us hope when we were sitting in another POW camp, because when they, the POWs heard about the raid, and the, and the guys in the Hanoi Hilton heard about the raid, and they said, we knew we had not been forgotten. and he, And they said, that hope is what sustained us until we were finally released, because we knew... that that America had not forgotten us and were trying to do everything to rescue us. Hope is the most powerful force in the world, and we see it time and time again. And that was a a great story in in talking to some of these POWs.
3: A great friend of our show is Gary Sinise, and he talked about General Abizade in a (laughs) high-tensity meeting with all the higher-up in command. Was it Iraq or Afghanistan? Iraq, right?
5: Afghanistan. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, my bad.
3: And in comes this guy he didn't recognize. What was his request, and what did you get from this story?
5: Yeah, so we were having dinner with all these uh, generals and admirals. General John Abizade, the CENTCOM commander, is there. And in walks a civilian. He, he looks a little stunned looking at all the generals. And he said, uh, kind of blurts out. He says, hey, uh, who's in charge here? And, of course, we all thought that was pretty funny. We knew General Abizade was in charge. And he goes up to Abizade and he introduces himself. And he says, sir, I, I'm Jerry Sinise. I'm an actor. I played Lieutenant Dan in the movie Forrest Gump. And, of course, we'd all seen it. It was a magnificent uh, movie. And he did a great job. And he says, I'm here because I want to bring school supplies to the children of Afghanistan. And it was interesting, as Gary went on, he made this impassioned plea about getting a C-130 so he could deliver supplies. And you know, you can see guys around the room going, doesn't this guy know we're in the middle of a war? But then as he continued to talk, the entire tenor of the room changed. And as I point out in the book, you know, it's easy to get jaded by war. You can become kind of callous to the indifference and the suffering. And then all of a sudden, when you see somebody like a Gary Sinise or others, that have compassion for these young kids in Afghanistan, that go out of their way uh, to help people, it really kind of reaffirms your humanity. And, man, the last thing you want to lose in the middle of a war is your humanity. And, and, and I know you know Gary. I mean, he has gone on. Every time I was at, at Walter Reed or Bethesda, there was Gary Sinise, you know, trying to help soldiers. No fanfare Uh, He's a remarkable guy. And again, I saw this in a lot of places, people with great compassion.
3: Absolutely. And you talk about uh, some other things, integrity, go back in history. John Adams and the Boston Massacre, defending British soldiers in a time of revolution in America. He was their lawyer.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and of course, if you listen to the historians, they will tell you that that was a seminal event in American law because it really was about the law. We, We were going to prosecute these British soldiers, who were responsible for the Boston Massacre. And, and, of course, nobody wanted to raise their hand and say, well, I'll defend them, but Adams did. And, and of course, it changed everything about how we did business as, as a, a legal system. My mother used to love to tell this story because it was about defending people that you didn't always agree with or that might be on the other side. And, of course, Adams wins the, wins the legal battle, uh, and they are, uh, they're set free because it was a, a case of self-defense. But, uh, again, a powerful moment in American history.
3: What about you? Talk about humility. Uh, this is a quote from your book. I think it's from General McChrystal. Coley McCraven, the smartest seal on the team on the teams, <laughs> is like saying he's the fastest sumo wrestler in a race. What good is he? He's a Texan who can't ride a horse and a navy guy who can't sail a boat. Basketball, the man's got two and two inch vertical jump. Have a sense of humor, show some humility. That's what McChrystal was saying, right? <laughs> yeah,
5: you know, as you know, Brian, it's kind of part of the special operations creed. you got to harass people all the time. You don't want them to get an inflated head. And so I talk about the fact that humor is such an important part of these kind of noble qualities. And, you know, I saw humor all the time when you go into the hospitals where these kids have been hit by an IED or, or shot. You know, they'd lost arms or legs or, or they were blast victims. And, and they would make a joke about it. And it was a way of saying, look, you may have beat me in the fight, but I'm not beaten you know you're never going to beat me until i kind of lose my sense of humor so humor just becomes this both both a sword and a shield right. and you always have to be prepared to laugh at yourself if you're not you know if you take yourself too seriously in life Uh, it's not good for you, and it's not good for the people around you. And
3: people listening right now say, well, I'll never be a Navy SEAL, I'll never do this, well, and I'll never be a famous actor, but be prepared to be special and be a hero. And you harken back to Lincoln, and I'm up against the break, but as you said, Lincoln once said that I will prepare, and someday my chance will come. Out there when you're listening, part of the hero code is pre-think what you're going to do in those situations where you have to step up.
5: Yeah, well, everybody. the point of the book, uh, Brian, is that You don't, As you said, you don't have to be astronauts, you don't have to be actors. Everybody can be a hero. You can learn from the great men and women who have been heroes, and I don't mean great as in notable, the great people that you see, the coaches and the cops on the street and and the the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen, Marines, you can learn from these people, and it will help you be a better person, and I think it will help the people around you.
3: Right. Admiral uh, William McRaven, great job. And please make this interview better than the one you do with uh, Chris Wallace because he is my rival. The Hero Code Uh, is the name of the book. Admiral, thanks so much.
2: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Back in a moment. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
3: We are back. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I always love talking to Admiral McRaven. I know that he was a big critic of President Trump, and he thinks that this might be enemy territory. It never is. It never will be. A lot of the military people have a hard time because President Trump is winging it. He does not have that orderly, linear background. He is not afraid to say, I don't think we should be in these foreign wars that he, uh, William McRaven, for example, has done so much to make sure we're successful in the bolt that we've lived through, as well as fighting the war on terror. Uh, he wrote the book "Make Your Bed." It a very simple book based off a speech that he made—a commencement address uh, he made one year. It got such a great response. He wrote a book about it, became a bestseller, and the Hero Code was also successful. Here's a little of this speech I wasn't able to share during the interview, but I want you to hear it now.
5: Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs, but the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter, and if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made.
3: It's always cool, right? Simple, but so effective. Everyone tries to mimic those speeches, uh, commencement address, and make that type of impact. It's hard to get close. When we come back, Peter Spiliakis will be with us. He wrote this column that really caught my attention, the breaking of Stephen Colbert. Not in a good way. Don't move. Brian Kilmeach, so glad you're here.
2: that makes you think this is the brian kilmeade show working in television is a great privilege and i do
0: it because i love it not to win some fancy award is what i would have said yesterday but today i'm all about that bling because the late show with stephen colbert just won a 2021
3: Uh, And that was yesterday. That was last night. That was before we uh, booked Peter Spiliakis, and he was kind enough to come on, a columnist with the National Review, who wrote this very, I I thought, this uh, earth-shattering column called The Breaking of Stephen Colbert. You know, obviously, uh, late-night television has changed so much, I feel like I'm just watching... another political show and you don't really get much laughing you hear clapping in support as anti-trump rhetoric goes forward and everything joe biden does is great peter spiliakis noticed that he wrote this column called the breaking of stephen colbert and he wrote it right after john stewart's appearance peter welcome how you doing brian so first off watching john stewart uh, do what he did about the leak, the origin of the coronavirus. I watched it. I watched. I always watch the replay, uh, the late night shows in the morning, as I get up and get ready for work. Here's a little of John Stewart, and I wanted you to tell me what about this appearance made you write the column, cut 33.
0: There's, there's a chance that this was created in a lab. There's an investigation. A chance? Well, I'm, I don't. So, oh I, my if God! There's evidence. I'd love to hear. It. There's I just don't a know. N- novel respiratory coronavirus overtaking Wuhan, China what do we do oh you know who we could ask the wuhan novel respiratory coronavirus lab the disease is the same name as the lab how did this happen and they're like "Mm, a pangolin kissed a turtle we have is in Wuhan, yes, where they have a lab called... What's the lab called again, Stephen? The Wuhan novel coronavirus lab. I believe that's Uh the case. And how long have you
8: worked for Senator Ron Johnson? Let me tell you
3: something. So what about a little bit of that exchange made you write the column?
8: Well, one thing that struck me is that the relationship between Colbert and Stewart, because Stewart changed mainstream Network comedy in an important way uh, Before Stewart and The Daily Show Mainstream network comedy Basically joked about whatever was happening They would tell jokes about Republican presidents They would tell jokes about Democratic presidents Stewart with The Daily Show He's basically a basically liberal guy So his Daily Show, which got a lot of play It mostly came from a liberal perspective It mostly made fun of Republicans or, And Fox uh, or conservatives. But at the same time Colbert, pardon me, Stewart was a liberal guy, but if he saw his own side screwing up, or if he saw something that was absurd, he would make a joke about it. But over time, mainstream comedy has evolved, especially when it comes to public affairs, from becoming liberal to becoming party-line. Whereas Jon Stewart's a liberal comedian, but if he sees something that's absurd or silly, he's going to make fun of it. He's going to make jokes about it. Whereas uh, Stephen Colbert has been working in a world that's much more conformist and much more partisan. And in that world, among elite liberals, volunteering that the lab leak actually was something that's possible or important is something that's not really supposed to be done. It's it's instead of it being liberal versus conservative, it's in-group versus out-group. It's us versus them. And for a certain segment of Colbert's audience, volunteering or making jokes about the lab leak as if it should have happened, as, as if it might have happened, is helping them. It's helping Trump. It's helping Senator Tom Cotton. And you're not supposed to do it because it's not about what's funny and what's not funny. It's about... It's not even about what's true and what's not true. It's about us versus them. And you can see in Colbert's Colbert's reaction to everything that Jon Stewart is saying, Colbert is trying to signal desperately to his audience, this isn't me. This is him. I'm not the bad guy, he's the bad guy. I'm not the guy giving aid and comfort to the enemy, he's the guy giving aid and comfort to the enemy, because Colbert is afraid that the next day there's going to be a whole lot of social media reporters and other people saying, oh, Colbert is helping Trump, Colbert is being racist, Colbert is being bad, he's afraid of being identified with the out-group, in his mind, if he's identified with the O group, bad things could happen to him. In other words, people who praise him now are going to scrutinize every word he says in order to trip him up, in order to make him look bad. So Jon Stewart quit in 2015, and the forces of conformism for late-night comedy have only gotten stronger then. So Jon Stewart's coming out of the world of you know, the early 2000s, where he's a liberal guy. But he makes the jokes that come to mind, and Colbert is coming from the world of 2021 where you have Jimmy Kimmel who basically just – he, Democratic congressional staffers email him talking points, and he just reads them on the air because in 2021, mainstream liberal comedy – mainstream topical comedy on network shows like that is strictly partisan and once again when i say partisan i don't mean liberal versus conservative there's nothing liberal or conservative about whether the virus came out of a lab either it happened or it didn't happen but it's us versus them it's party line and it's the way it developed that you know saying that the lab leak might have happened or even joking about it is a bad thing done by bad people and if you're doing it you're being a bad person. I and mean, it doesn't even matter whether what you're saying is funny or true.
3: Here, heres I, I mean, I would have interjected, but everything you're saying is 100 percent right. And with, I don't think you can challenge it. And, but it's a great, uh, that's a great observation on your part. But i will I'll give you a better example that backs up your thought. Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon was playing like he was the Jay Leno school where equal opportunity offender. That's what Johnny Carson was, best friends with the Reagans. He would make fun of Reagans, do skits about Reagans. That's just the way it was. And Jimmy Fallon had to apologize for having fun with presidential candidate Donald Trump. His ratings suffered because of it, and he had to apologize for being funny and showing respect to a candidate regardless of their party. And I don't think he's ever recovered.
8: Well, I actually think even, like, Kimmel is a a better example because— Colbert, at least, is a political comedian. I think he's more original and he's got a better sense of the absurd than he shows because he's basically sentenced himself to a lifetime of doing Robert Mueller jokes, even if nothing really funny about Robert Mueller's happened. I mean, it's got to be really painful, him being going to the writer, writer's room and being, all right, what's some Republican congressman we can make fun of today? Uh, but Jimmy Kimmel is basically kind of a sleazy, transgressive comedian by inclination, and he's just sentenced himself to a lifetime of... Just reading Democratic Party talking points on the
3: and air and crying about Obamacare and uh, acqu- falsely equating it to his son's heart condition.
8: And part of it is these guys are these guys are making a lot of money, but
3: I also kind of feel
8: bad for them because they they're they're choosing to do a kind of comedy where they're purposely. They're purposely pandering to a relatively yep. small audience. Because once again, what they're doing today cannot have worked forty years ago because the audiences were much wider back then. Now you can get by on talking to two, three million people. Right. And you used to get like narrow. an eight. You can, you can now you're
3: getting a two. Yeah,
8: you can narrow cast. But at the same time, it's come at a cost of the comedy sense of the transgressive and of the absurd. And, you know, what what John Stewart was doing is he was observe observing absurdity. Now does John Stewart really know does he really believe that the virus came from a lab? Who knows? But the point is he he saw something that seemed silly, saw something that seemed absurd yep. and made some pretty funny, some pretty funny jokes about it, and Colbert, Colbert's reaction was to panic. But the panic wasn't because what he was saying wasn't true or wasn't funny. It's because it's not supposed to be said on this show at this time.
3: And because I want you to, I was, want you to hear. Here's Colbert on stage, on doing his monologue, and just admitting what you just said. Cut thirty six.
0: Making jokes about you has been good for ratings. It's almost as if the majority of Americans didn't want you to be president. <laughs> but you know. You know who's got really bad ratings these days? You do. (laughs) Terrible approval numbers. I hear they're thinking about switching your time slot with Mike Pence. Since all of my success is clearly based on talking about you, if you really want to take me down, there's an obvious way. Resign.
3: So, uh, I guess he was talking about these guys just survive on uh, anti-Trump humor. All three of them do. And now Jimmy Fallon does too. Even you see, uh, um, you see uh, James Corden come out and just hit three anti-Trump jokes. He's reluctantly because he thinks that's the only way uh, to do it. So where well, do they? I'm not, sure I'm not sure. it's just about ratings because once again, it's Joe Stewart going on the Colbert Show
8: probably did good for the show it got a lot more social media hits than it would have if you just had some random dude doing random hackish jokes but at the same time the forces for conformism aren't simply drawn by ratings i'm not even sure they're entirely drawn by ratings they're drawn from a fear that social media mobs will come after him like when colbert was desperately trying to break up Jon stewart's timing like at one point the uh, band actually like punctuated one of colbert's points in order to signal to the audience that colbert was actually right that colbert is funny because john Stewart was getting way too much of a reaction for for what they for what they wanted what they're afraid of is that social media mobs who, once again this is not the majority of the country they'll decide that he's the enemy and these social media mobs they're not most colbert viewers they're not most democrats but they're overrepresented they're um, their influence is overrepresented in places like corporate marketing departments. So, if they start like a cancel Colbert tab uh, or a tag uh, hashtag rather, then it would be an annoyance to him at minimum. So he'd rather avoid it. So it's not just about it's not just about uh, ratings or even not even primarily about ratings. It's fear of social media mobs and the disproportionate influence of social media mobs on on advertisers and other journalistic elites because once again if that hashtag trends that you know stephen colbert is racist because once again if you're a lot of this is in group versus out group especially for these social media mobs
3: right yeah it'll hurt it'll hurt their sponsors now let me ask some peter what happens if he starts Uh, going back and forth when Joe biden clearly loses his pace for forgets the bill of rights uh, decides uh, to name his secretary of defense the general uh, forgets this general's name and he starts doing that kind of like leno used to do do you think he loses sponsors do you think he loses ratings
8: i don't know that he loses ratings necessarily but i do think you get once again it's if it was John Stewart, I think he would make the joke. It, but if you habituate your audience to pure partisanship, and you show weakness Tample to social media mobs, it. yeah. it's tough to come back from that. N- not impossible, but you have to be willing to take hits. And if you look at Colbert lately, he just looks like a defeated guy. That Even though he's winning. He's, well, he's but he's but is he winning? I mean, he's making money. All these guys are making money, but is he doing the jokes he wants to do? He knows that he's hemmed in. I mean, he knows he can show better than he's... He knows, he knows that he can show better than he's doing. I do hear better. you. But, but at the same time, I mean, it's, similar things happen. If you Similar things happen to some so talk show hosts, conservative talk show hosts on radio. They go into certain grooves. And it's tough to get out of them. And if you try, well, there's going to be audience backlash. So I think, once again, with Colbert, I think the problem is less audience backlash. I don't think he's going to lose 200,000, 300,000 viewers if he makes a joke about Joe Biden falling down the stairs.
3: That's not so. He, so he has to do a show from his house. So you don't get any feedback at all, which is never easy. But it didn't stop him. Trump's out of office, and he's still revolving his whole monologue, to your point. Cut 40.
0: Speaking of things opening up, the former president's mouth. On Saturday night, Fatty Krueger gave a speech to the North Carolina Republican Party, where he said a bunch of stuff, but nobody paid attention, because it looked like he wore his pants backwards. Either he shares a tailor with a Ken doll, or he spends so much time yanking stuff out of his keister, he just likes to have the zipper back there to make it easy. But it raises a lot of questions, like, how did he zip his pants? And was his belt also on backwards? And how lucky are we that this man no longer has the nuclear
8: codes?
3: Okay, hysterical. I mean, I mean that's that's pathetic. Yeah,
8: it, it's one of those things where you have to be like, you have to be embarrassed to do that material. It's a, some of it sounds like it was written by a by a not very bright middle school boy, but at the same time, it's kind. Of, when you do party line comedy, and by party line I mean there's in groups and there's out groups, there's us and there's them, and my job is to make fun of them, even if that's not necessarily the best material that day. And now that you have to do this day after day for years. There's gonna be times where you don't have a lot to talk about. And you just have to and you just have to make do because you're purposely because you're purposely eliminating a huge number of potential jokes. Because your job is to be partisan, to follow to follow a party to follow a party line. And it's once again, he's he's purposely made himself tough, made it tough on himself. And you can see that Jon Stewart, part of it is John Stewart retired from this kind of comedy in twenty fifteen. John Stewart can do the jokes that John Stewart wants to do now. Based on John Stewart's inclinations, liberals are going to like most of the jokes that John Stewart thinks of. But they're not going to like all of them, or more, more specifically, the most partisan and humorless liberals Peter, aren't going to like all of
3: them. I 100 percent agree, and I was the victim of a lot of his jokes. And I would just say, OK, uh, you take me out of context, but it was, it was very funny. And I and, and he would attack our network a lot of times. And when he got personal, I thought it was too far, especially at the end. But a lot of the stuff was very creative. And I would sit there, and I, I'd watch the Daily Show every night. I, I had to. I don't have to, I look at the Daily Show now, it's an embarrassment. I look at these late night shows, the only person even worth even glimpsing at is James Corden because he's so creative and talented. And when I watched the history of late night, which was done by an outside source, but aired on CNN, that made me miss it. Then when I saw your column, I go, man, you get it. That's exactly what this country needs a late-night show to laugh at itself to diffuse the tension. The person to go up the middle and be an equal opportunity offender. You'd be surprised. I guarantee you, uh, if you're willing, if you're a comedian by nature, you want to ruffle people's feathers if you're a real comedian. Stop being somebody who wants to be accepted. You're not a comedian then. You're supposed to. You've been an outcast your whole life. Real quick, your final thought. Well, part of it is that,
8: it's, once again, it's, uh, I want to get away from being liberal versus conservative as opposed to conformist versus non-conformist. Like if you see comics like Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle is a man of the left, but he is willing to make jokes – that basically offend at some point or another everybody. Absolutely. But he had to make he had to make the decision to do that. Whereas uh Stephen Colbert made the decision gotcha. not to not to do that. And that's the difference.
3: And that's why the column was uh, resonating, the breaking of Stephen Colbert, Peter Spiliakis, thanks so much, a columnist from the National Review. Back in a moment to wrap things up. This is the Brian Kilme show.
2: news unique opinions hear it all on the brian kilmeade show
3: Hey, welcome back. I just found out that we need to know more.
2: More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D.
3: I'm not going to play the sound. I don't think we need it. I don't even think it's that big of news, and I'm glad for him. Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib came out and said, I'm gay. So he's 28 years old. He's his starter and a, a tremendous player. And I don't think, um, and he put it on tape. You could hear it at your, I just don't think it matters in today's world. And that's good news. Don't you agree? No,
7: I totally agree. Actually, Eric and I were talking about that before the show. Like, what's the big deal here? But I guess it's the first player that's actually playing. What was it? Uh, Michael Sam was drafted, yeah. but he never played.
3: Next, Senator Marco Rubio says the Pentagon UFO report will leave many questions unanswered. Big shock. Stunning. One of the few senators asking for answers, won't find some. Uh, The TMZ has been investigating UFOs, and the Fox network will air a one-hour primetime special Tuesday, June 29th at 8 o'clock. No surprise. Next. Next. Trump beats uh, BLM. Uh, The judge throws out the case accusing the former president of having protesters move so he could walk to D.C. church for a photo op. Everyone from General Mattis on down deserves to apologize to the president.
7: Do you think that will happen?
3: No, in fact, General Mattis had a speech the other day where he called out the president for using the military to clear out protesters in front of the White House as he walked to the church. Not true, not true, not true. And courts have said this. Judges have said this. But the apologies won't come. Nope. Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade.
3: (laughs) Welcome back, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hope you're enjoying this holiday weekend. Chance to spend it with your family outdoors without a mask. Sorry, Anthony Fauci. We're not worried about the variant. We can handle it. We've all made our decisions about the vaccine. We move ahead. Time to be inspired with two very special people. Katie Milkman will be here. She'll talk about... Uh, which he learned at the Wharton Business School to help you in your life and just uh, build off her podcast. She'll be with you in a short while. But coming up now is Ken Linder. He's one of the most successful talent agents ever. He thought that what he has learned doing in his business, getting there and succeeding, can help you in your life and your business, and he's absolutely right. I've met him along the way. Ken Linder joined us to talk about his brand-new book and what he learned along the way. Here's my interview with Ken Linder. Hi, Brian. How are you? Congratulations. I I mean, not unexpected, but a big success. You know this business inside and out, and you actually picked the market. You you know the market. There's a lot of people listening to us right now whose lives and careers have been turned on their heads. How can this book help?
9: Well, Brian, I have been helping people, as you said, for almost four decades take the steps to find the right job for them, secure it, and then thrive in it. So i put a number of steps, which I'd love to chat with you about, yep. to help people get back into the workforce or enter the workforce for the first time.
3: But how does what you learned in TV uh, relate to the everyday person who has no interest in being in front of the camera or being behind the microphone?
9: Well, I believe that there are certain steps, what I call a choreography, that um, are effective for everyone. There are logical steps that anyone can take to put the percentages in their favor that they will attain that that great job. For example, the first thing that I would say is, use this pandemic, this time off, to assess what it is you really want. Make this a great reset. Think about the things you do really well. Think about all of the education or all of the experience, the job experiences you've had that make you an asset to a particular employer and again take stock of the things you really want in your next job and the things you don't want and then write a list I call it a clarifying list so that you clarify in your mind what you want to see in your next job so it's when you look for a job you know what to look for mm-hmm. and you can effectively articulate those things those assets to a prospective employer when you have an interview and, Brian, one really big tip for everybody out there who wants to get back into the workforce is think about all of the people with whom you've worked over the years. Because those are the people who know how good you are, know your contacts, know your work ethic, know the content of your character. And either A, maybe one of those people can hire you, or they can highly recommend you to someone who can hire you very quickly. My dad was laid off at 66 years old, and the emotional wind was taken out of his sails because he said to me, Kenny, who's going to hire and invest in somebody who's 66 years old? I told my dad to do exactly what I just said. Keep in touch with all the people who've worked with you before. Um, Stay relevant. Read all about the business you plan to go back into. Keep your contacts fresh. And he did. Three years later, someone who he had kept in contact with for three years, mm-hmm. who used to be a buyer trainee, had become the chairman of the board of marshals, he called my dad and said, okay, the time is now. I'm starting a company called TJ Maxx, and Jack, I want you to train all of the individuals that we have as buyers, way so you train me. My dad started at age 69, Brian, and he worked until he was 99. Wow. Parting the information that he knew so stay in touch with the people who know how good you are and lastly, don't discount you know your your background, your um, work investment. that's an asset that can set you positively apart from everyone else.
3: So how do you feel about people who say, "At this point, you know I just want money and a lot of people go follow the money they look up and they're 35, 40 years old and they're like, well, you know what? I don't really have a career. You know, I look forward to my vacations. I don't look forward to going to work. How do you find something that is not work? Well, you know, this is, this
9: is very pervasive right now, Brian. It's a great, great question because with the pandemic, so many people have taken stock of their lives. So many people have you know, realized the fragility of life and health, and they want more. From their job, they want more meaning, or they want more work life balance, or they want to spend more time at home or by family. So, you know, I think people's values have changed. And by the way, I think employers are now more open to being more flexible. I know I am as an employer. And I think it's time to think about what it is that would make your heart sing. And money's important, but you know what? You spend so much of your time working. And I talk about this in career choreography. There are steps to take, such as Again, thinking about what you don't want in your next job and what would make your heart sing in a new one so that you find a better work-life balance, more purpose and more meaning, and then go out and get that job when the time is right.
3: So the thing is, is, even if you are desperate, don't show you're desperate. I remember reading Matthew McConaughey's book, and he comes to Hollywood, and he's meeting with an agent. And he came out and it's like, I need this job, I need this job. He goes, No, you're not ready you're not ready for this job. You can't need this job. You gotta be ready to have this job. How do you not show that desperation that you you're extremely worried about paying your bills and what cut and what is around the bend, which technically we're not even out of this yet. Right.
9: Well, you know, one of the things I talk about in career choreography is managing your emotions. You never want to make a decision or make a move when you're enveloped in toxic emotions such as fear sadness you feel resentful you feel hurt you feel diminished you always what happens then is you you want to make a quick fix decision and most times you don't make a decision for the long term that's constructive for the long term and in career choreography i talk about it's like playing chess one move affects and impacts many other moves so you need to think long term about what moves you make. So when talking about desperation, not only do you not want to show desperation, but you don't want to make a decision or have a meeting when you're feeling that way. And I actually talk about the steps you can take to dissipate fear, because we all have fears during the, during the pandemic. We all have concerns, and we need to get past those uh, in order to make our very clearest Professional
3: decisions. I, I know what you. Uh, you know you give some examples too in the book. Like people call up and they might have a son or a daughter and they need some advice on what they want to do. They don't know exactly what they want to do. So you'll say ask a series of questions. What are you interested in? And this one girl says to you, Well, I love playing soccer. I also love working with Down syndrome kids. I like being around other people. How do you take some of the things where you could just back off and say, Don't worry about a career. Just tell me what you like. Tell me what you enjoy doing, and then find the career to match that. Right.
9: Right. In fact, uh, that girl's name is Sarah. Um, you've, got, you've got a great memory, Brian. And so Sarah was um, a young lady that was sent to me by a client of mine, and she was in college, and she was conflicted because she wanted to be the stay-at-home mom that her mother was, but she also wanted to work with Down syndrome children and wanted to teach them five days a week. So how can you be the stay-at-home mom and work five days a week? And she also was a great musician. She was great at the piano and great at the guitar. So these are all the things that I asked her to write down in her clarifying list. It clarified and crystallized for us the things that she really loved to do. She was also a great listener and a great problem solver. So what I said to her was, let's put all of these assets, um, these pieces of information, into you know our thought processes, and what I said was, here's the idea, here's the choreography. Instead of teaching Down Syndrome children five days a week, be a Down Syndrome um, uh, counselor or psychologist. That way you can work from a home office or you work from an office you know, uh, close to your home and you don't have to be in school five days, days a week. So you can balance being a stay-at-home mom mm-hmm. or an attentive mom and, and having a schedule that's flexible. And when it comes to your gifts of music, use that music to draw out and, and give the joy of music to those Down syndrome children. Well, you know, three or four years later now, she's just about uh, finishing college and she's on her way to uh, getting a graduate degree in being a special needs counselor. And it was because we saw what she wanted and what her value system was that we're able to creatively come up with a choreography of her being able to be a stay-at-home mom right. one day and yet fulfill her dream of working with Down syndrome children. So
3: Kenny Linder, one of the most respected people in TV and uh, film and radio, is on the air with us right now. He's gotten a brand-new book out. It's called Career Choreography, Your Step-by-Step Guide to Finding the Right Job and Achieving New Success and Happiness. So, Ken, used to dealing with emerging stars and established stars, Lester Holt arguably top five most powerful person, people in news, Megyn Kelly, as talented as any people and successful as anybody you're ever going to meet on down. What did you, um, what do you, what did you learn from their success that can help you with average everyday people? Or is there even a difference?
9: I don't think there's a difference, Brian, but I will tell you, I'll tell you two things that I've learned, which I'd love to share with your listeners. One, you know, whether it's Oprah Winfrey, who so blossomed as a host, and she was a terrific anchor in Baltimore, but when she became a host in Chicago and then got her own show, it showcased all of her gifts, you know, her, her ability to dig down deep in her soul, her ability to listen and be compassionate. And what, what I analogize from Oprah's example to everyone else's, Find a job, a position, a career, which takes advantage of your skill sets, which showcases your gifts, which takes advantage of the things you love to do. Because if you – and here's the second tip. If you love what you do, if you're good at it, and you feel – and you believe in what you do, you feel good about what you do every day, Mm -hmm. not only will you be happy – but the chances are you'll put the, you know, you put the percentages in your favor that you'll be highly successful.
3: Where does money and happiness line up? How do they line up in your world?
9: I believe if you're really good at what you do and you're happy, the money will come. I must tell you that you know, I, was, I, I went to law school, graduated from law school, and was just about to, sit, to take a corporate law firm job. And I did my own clarifying list, Brian, I said, what do I want to do? I love working with people, not projects. I love being an entrepreneur. I love being a marketer. And I love contract law. And, you know, the law firm job sort of lined up with all of those criteria. But then all of a sudden I met the president of a major agency just before I was about to take that job. And he told me about the people, you know, the people business. And they had represented Elvis and the Beatles and – and Billy Joel and Robert Redford and all these big talents. And I thought, how amazing is that to work with people and see what can be in them, which is what I love to do, and then choreograph the steps to help them get to, you know, to live their dreams. And it met all my criteria. And I went to work for that agency at less than half of the money that the law firm offered me. But I truly believe that if I were really good at what I, I did and I was passionate about what I did and I loved what I did, the right. money would come. And the money has come. But I'll tell you, if I won the lottery today, I would not stop doing what I, what I do, Brian. You know I love what I do. I love helping people, you know, self-actualize and, and, and fulfill their dreams. So I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't change. I know money is important, uh, and I wouldn't discount it. But I think if you're really great at what you do, the money will come.
3: Absolutely. So there's this study out, because we're in the pandemic right now, we're talking to Kenny Lindner, that two and three people want to work remotely full-time after the pandemic ends. That's a new survey. About 11% said not being allowed to work at home anymore wouldn't bother them, but most people do. They have discovered this. What is your reaction? Because you can do your, you know, you as an agent, you could do your job anywhere too, right? Maybe some of your agents that work with you.
9: So funny, Brian. We are actually moving today to a smaller office because I'm going to work remotely from now on, as, as, as are many of my staff members. So we'll still have a smaller office, but we don't need to um, work in an office these days. So, you know, with the computer, with everything and all of our tools, I think employers understand and um, I really believe are empathetic uh, to people working Remotely, uh, I must tell you, uh, as long as my staff members remain productive, some of them have young children at home. Yep, it makes it easier for them. It makes them happy. And you know what? It, it, uh, it breeds loyalty. Um, I'm all for helping people find a great work, right. work-life balance.
3: Career choreography. I mean, it's a great concept. When you think Kenny Linder, you think biggest names in TV. Uh, not really acting. Uh, guys like Matt Lauer and others. And it's good to know that he still understands that everybody needs a pathway. You need to have a vision. I don't care if you want to own your own plumbing company or if you want to own your own shoe store. It's the same thing. Go at it. Have a focus. Better chance to achieve it. When we come back, we're going to look inside the problem in America right now. Getting people to work, period. You gave up so much money, Mr. President. They don't want to work. We got 9 million jobs open. And the unemployment money that's set aside, not only is it too much, it's being wasted. I'll explain that story. How thieves are feasting on our benevolence, and in in my belief, the uh, error of Joe Biden's ways. Don't move, Brian Kilmeade. Joe.
2: Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade.
7: What may have happened to some of the extended unemployment benefits paid out during the pandemic? And some reports are saying that as much as half of it may have been stolen $400 billion. Now, of course, this was a concern when these programs were ramped up during the pandemic that this was something that was going to happen. But a lot of policymakers figured if the pandemic was such a crisis, it was far more important just to get this money out as quickly as possible, much more important to get it in the hands of people who needed it and figure out the issues with fraud, uh, and possible theft later. Well, now that we're getting a better picture of that, that as much as $400 billion of that aid may have been stolen, a lot of it by criminal syndicates overseas and that state-backed crime groups. It's the usual suspect. It's well-organized, organized crime groups spread around the world. These are the same kinds of folks that we see involved in cybersecurity ransomware attacks. They just moved on to the next giant pile of money. Traditionally, they would never go after unemployment benefits because that pile of money was so small. It was intermittent. It was difficult. But just the flood of money that came out during the pandemic and these aid programs finally made it worthwhile for them to go out. And now we're seeing on the dark web that this is a service being offered like any other cybercrime, organized criminal attack.
3: It's unbelievable. That's Nicholas Johnson on another network talking about this horrible situation in our country where we put all this money aside for unemployment insurance to be extended to for us to go home and not work, for jobs to uh, fold through no fault of our own, for waiter jobs just to disappear and restaurants to go out of business. So so much money was put aside, all the deficit spending, and then you find out that four hundred billion's been stolen by thieves, many of which outside our borders. It's sickening. You add to that how much money is actually getting into Americans' hands. It's way too much. Forty percent they say of the money handed to Americans for unemployment reasons, and let's say it's legitimate. They say. 40% went to investments. It is supposed to be there to sustain you until you get another job. If you have 40% of that money given to you from unemployment, invest in you don't need that money. 9 million open jobs, 10 million workers without a job. I think we should down to just a million not working. I think my math is correct. And we come back an inspiring story that could help you make your life better. A person with a theory that'll help you get better. Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: Talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. So Katie Milkman's coming your way now. She She's a professor at the Wharton School of, of Business, the University of Pennsylvania, host of a Choiceology podcast, and her book is called How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. How perfect is this topic? For you, are you happy with the job? When you were asked to pause, were you? And when you did, when your job went on hold or went away, did you reevaluate the treadmill you were on and say, I don't know if I want to get back onto that, like being home, or I want to be able to do something to maybe pay me less but be more fulfilling, or I just want more money. I'm tired of just keeping pace. That is why I think Katie Milkman a perfect person to hear from as she talks about her new book and all about her life experiences. So let's listen. Katie, welcome to The Brian Kilmeade Show.
1: Thanks so much for having
3: me. First word I'd like to circle is science. People think it's motivation. It's how you're born with this type of family you have. Have you managed to find out and and label it? Why did you, or you should say, how have you decided to make this a science? When did you realize there was a science behind it?
1: Well, I was a PhD student studying computer science and business when I discovered the small but growing field of behavioral science, which was studying the ways that people make systematic errors in judgment. And it became clear quickly that there was a real opportunity to capitalize on those insights and actually turn them on their head and use science to help people make better decisions, not just to document that we make mistakes, but to use it for good. And that's that's how I got my start.
3: So you want to see how people change. Now I, I go back in, in life. There's some people... They'll say, you know, I want to quit smoking. I decided the next day I'm going to quit smoking. They do. And I'm thinking to myself, really? They must be strong. And then I see very strong people. I'm not going to quit. I'm, I'm going to try to quit. I've been trying to quit forever. And I'm thinking to myself, you're a natural leader. You've done well, had all the success. How could you not quit this? How? What do you mean you want to work out? Why don't you find time to work out? Why are busy people finding time to work out? They have more kids, more things going on, but yet they always seem to work out. And I'm saying, why do those people see us become such achievers? and others seem to always be frustrated with themselves. What advice can you give people? Is the first advice, headline being, that you can change?
1: Yes. But also, I would say, like, with a subheading, it is hard. So don't expect it to be an overnight magical thing that just happens. And so that's why science can help. And having actually strategies you're armed with, rather than just trying to brute force it, is a much better approach. Um, When we just sort of wake up and decide we're going to do something, we generally don't get that far. And that's why, you know, most New Year's resolutions fail. So we need techniques, tactics that will make it easier for us to overcome all the natural obstacles that keep us from changing and and hold us in our old patterns
3: and before we get into detail this is the headline 40 percent of premature deaths are the result of personal behaviors that we can change from small decisions to daily decisions like eating drinking exercise smoking sex and vehicle safety so it is uh, our our due date is within our hands to a degree
1: to a much larger degree than I ever imagined growing up. That statistic that you just read absolutely boggled my mind and changed the course of my research career when I learned how powerful it would be if we could really figure out what it takes to change.
3: All right, so you uh, let's get started. So people listening right now, they want to lose weight. They want to uh, be a better parent. Uh, they want to, uh, to, to exercise more. Uh, they want to, uh, They want to change jobs. How do they begin to change?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the The biggest headline, and this is going to be frustrating, but the biggest headline is it depends. And then I'll give you some actually yep. useful tips. But the it depends is it depends what's holding you back. Is the reason that you haven't changed, that you haven't found the right moment to really say, like, I am 100% all in. I'm ready to jump off this <laughs> cliff and do it. Uh, is it because you find it unpleasant, you don't go to the gym or exercise because you really dislike doing it? Um, or is it because you keep forgetting, you know, is that the reason that you aren't making progress or you don't take your medications or whatever it is that's standing in your way, you don't mentor more effectively? So depending on what it is, the answer really um, varies. And I think that's a big mistake that's often made when I work with companies and individuals that are looking to change. They all want sort of a shiny off-the-shelf single solution and, and that they can use for everything. and. Um, um, when we tailor our strategy to whatever the particular obstacle is, we actually get a lot farther. But I can, I can tell you about a few common obstacles and okay. big, uh, big wins there. Okay, so <laughs> let me give you my favorite. I think my favorite insight about change um, from the research literature is that so many of us, when we have a goal, we think I just need to find the most effective way to pursue this goal and I will nail it. So to go to a fitness example, which is a common goal, a lot of people around New Year's want to you know, get more yep. fit. They go to the gym and they're like, what's the most efficient workout I can do? I'm going to get on the Stairmaster that burns the most calories per minute. Um, but a much more effective strategy that very few of us realize will be more effective because we think we're picking what's effective is to find the most fun way to pursue your goal, right? So instead of choosing the Stairmaster, you choose the Zumba class that you really enjoy, and the reason is that we're creatures who are um, really focused on the here and now and the instant gratification we get from our choices, and if something that we're doing, even if it serves some larger long-term goal, if it's not fun in the moment, if we are finding it unpleasant, we don't we don't persist, and so finding ways to pursue change that you actually enjoy, whether it's by making your goal social or um, doing something I call temptation bundling, which is linking it with something else fun, like you always watch your favorite TV show while you're exercising, and only allow yourself to do that while you're working out. Whatever the strategy is that makes it fun for you, that can be a really big and valuable solution for a lot of goals that are right. just drudgery.
3: I, for example, you give the example of fitness, and by the way, we're talking to. Uh, Katie Milkman, she's got a a book out, How to Change the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. When it comes to fitness, the worst thing to do is say, i got to work out every day at noon or 9 or 6 or 6 p.m. or 6 a.m. because you need flexibility in your day. And the minute that that moment goes by and you don't do it, it's so easy to say, well, that my moment has passed. So how do you rearrange that?
1: Yeah, I love that you brought that up. That's um, We did this huge experiment with Google um, with thousands of their employees trying to figure out how to help them build better gym habits, and we had this really surprising finding. We thought the thing was routine, routine, routine. Let's help people get into a consistent routine the same time every day that they do the thing, and that will build a lasting habit. And We found, actually, we were totally wrong. Uh, it was so important, actually, that people who built a flexible habit, the ones who, if they, you know, 7 a.m. was their regular time, but they had a fallback plan. If they didn't make it to the gym at 7 a.m., then they would. Would go at five pm after work those were the people who built the more robust habits and it just reinforces how important flexibility is because so much of the time when we 're pursuing a goal whether it 's around exercise or meditation yeah. or you know being a better parent we we trip up uh, and like the first best plan doesn't work out and we need to be flexible so that we, we have a no matter what plan in mind, as opposed to an only in the first best set of circumstances plan, because uh, we'll just fall on our face if that's the way we approach things.
3: So you use this term too. Uh, success is is more like treating a chronic disease than curing a rash.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really nice visual, isn't it? <laughs> Not yet. No,
3: but I know what you mean. <laughs>
1: yeah it's um I think it's a useful metaphor, even if it doesn't want to make your heart sing um when we think about when we think about medicine, right, which is a way of changing the body, when we think about medicine, we understand that some conditions are chronic and so need chronic treatment right so a diabetic a, a doctor wouldn't put them on insulin for a month and take them off of it, and I think we have like the wrong model of change uh if we thought about it more, the way that we think about ailments that are with us our whole lives um, and something, you know, the the things that are standing in the way, whether it's it's that it's not super fun to pursue your goals or that we're forgetful or that we have habits and and tend to fall back on whatever the easiest path is, um, whatever those, if you need to believe in yourself, those things just don't go away. And so to succeed, we have to keep using the strategies that are working as opposed to thinking it'll be, oh, I'll just really work at this goal for a month and then boom, for the rest of my life, I'll solve this issue and I'll be a different person. So I think, I think a different mental model is in order and then doctors sort of have it figured out and we understand that about chronic disease and so it's it's a more useful even it's kind of a negative metaphor but it's a useful way to think about it
3: a lot of people say for example let's say i want to be rich okay that's thinking grow rich and that's similar to norman vincent Peale, um you know the power of positive thinking but if you really want to drill down on it people say get to the why why do you want to be rich what would you do with that money what are you willing to sacrifice to get it? and if you have that end goal and the why is strong enough it happens if if you just want to be rich, it's so general, you tend to get off the path. How do you feel about the whys making the difference between who sticks with it and not?
1: It's unquestionably true, and there's decades of research showing that if you have a concrete goal and you appreciate why it matters to you, that's helpful. It's much more helpful than not having a concrete goal or a why, but it's nowhere near enough, um, right? It, those things just will not get you there. You need to, you know, think more like a problem solver, an engineer, a doctor. Um, there is there's a lot that it takes besides positive thinking to, to enact change. And so as soon as you start making more concrete plans, okay, like, And and a plan isn't I am going to do more of X. It is at this time, on this date, under these circumstances, I will take care of X. Uh, And and here's my fallback plan when that first plan falls through. And here are my social supporters and the people who are going to actually go with me on that journey. And you know what? I'm going to put – I'm literally going to put stakes on this. I'm going to put money on the line that I will forfeit if I don't achieve this goal by this date. Those are the kinds of things that more – set us up for success than just having a goal and a why
3: so you've been listening to my interview with katie milkman when we come back if she hasn't motivated you yet she's going to tell you how to get rid of get rid of the lack of motivation and tell you how to achieve your dreams
2: don't go anywhere brian kilmeade will be right back a radio show like no other it's brian kilmeade
3: Hey, uh, welcome back, everyone. I just got to remind you on this patriotic weekend, what made America great? I was able to do 32 features with a great staff, 30 to 40 minutes long. I got four brand new ones. If you want to feel better about our country at a time in which uh, track athletes aren't feeling good about our country, just go, go ahead and download the Fox Nation app. Meanwhile, it's time for part two of my interview with Katie Milkman. She's a professor of the Wharton School of Business, but wrote a new book that I think can help you out or help somebody else you want to help out. It's called How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be she gets you unstuck here's more from katie milkman let's listen this is what i get a lot i'm just not that motivated i'm lazy for one thing in the minute you say you're lazy i think you are lost you can never just say that you're giving your body the wrong message but i'm a procrastinator i'm i'm lazy and people don't like the fact that they are but they're willing to accept it what if you're not willing to accept it
1: yeah yeah it's a really interesting question um One of the things that I think is really important about change and one of the barriers I've written about is um, having the confidence that you can achieve it. And so I think, you know, if you, if you don't believe in yourself, that does matter. I just talked about power of positive thinking. It's not enough. But, but it does matter that you have some belief in yourself, and there's a number of different ways that you can build that confidence. One of my favorite tricks that I wrote about in the book is from um, research by Lauren S. Chris Winkler, a brilliant uh, new faculty member at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern, showing that when we actually are asked for advice by other people and right. when we give advice – That actually builds our confidence and our competence. So if we mentor or coach someone else, we normally think we're doing them a favor, and and we may be, but we're actually helping ourselves because it helps us build our confidence that I've got what it takes. This person's looking to me as a role model. It um, helps us dredge up insights about what might work for us and makes us feel more committed because once we've told someone else to do it, we don't want to feel like a hypocrite who doesn't follow through. So I think that's one tactic, and there's others, but that's one thing that can be useful in thinking about how do you build out motivation and belief in yourself um and and commitment that we'll
3: see you through katie so let's take a step back you know what is success i mean people the the simple thing i want to be rich i want to be famous uh and i want to be happy but everyone has a different value of success you think you start with be happy
1: i would start with be happy
3: and what is that how do you decide for people to say what is that
1: well, it's a great question. I mean, the um, I think the the research doesn't point to like a single goal that we should all agree on, although I think happiness is a pretty good one. Uh, and it really needs to be self-defined what your objectives are and what will make, make you feel you've achieved and gotten to where you want to be. And then whatever that goal is, you have to figure out, okay, let's break it down. What are the, what are the obstacles to me being happy? Is it that, uh, you know, we know a lot about what makes people happy. It turns out it's really important to have a great social network and a flourishing, you know, set of relationships. It's really important for you to get enough sleep and to get a lot of exercise and good nutrients. It's good to find meaning at work if you want to be a happy person or meaning in some, if you're not working, meaning in whatever it is that you're doing on a daily basis. If it's taking care of children if you know whatever whatever role it is that you play you need to find meaning in it so those are a bunch of things that that can become concrete goals and you could start thinking okay if i if i haven't got this how am i going to set myself up for success to have a all of those things or, or choose one of them at a time really actually in the research as if you're making plans and trying to achieve too many goals at a time that can be demotivating right. so ideally sort of bite off one at a time and start becoming a tactician, make your plan. How are you going to do this concretely on a day-to-day basis? And what kinds of structures and supports do you need to build in write it, to, to make write sure it down. you can achieve it? Write it down? Writing it down can be helpful if it's um, if the the act of writing helps you structure your plan correctly. So there's this great research by Peter Goldwitzer, an NYU psychologist, showing that when we make plans, we normally are just much too abstract about them, and so we need to be much more concrete and thinking through the you know when will I do it where will I do it I've mentioned this uh, how will I do it um, so writing it down can sometimes lead you to do those things if you write down the okay if it's if it's three pm on a Thursday that's when I will go to spin class, or I will meditate, or I will um, make sure I go grab a coffee with my aunt. <laughs> Whatever it is that you're trying to do, if writing it down helps you make that more concrete plan, then it can be valuable. But, but the act of writing itself, I don't know of research mm-hmm. that shows that is particularly valuable.
3: Gotcha. And you also wrote a story that's in The Economist now, or contributed to a story, no, you wrote it, uh, that talked about the need to get a vaccine. And how do you nudge yeah. people to do it in a free society? If we're trying to get herd immunity and we're stuck at 40 percent, it's not going to happen. What's the best way to approach that with somebody making the decision that they want to make?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, my team actually at the University of Pennsylvania has spent a lot of time thinking about this. We partnered on a, a project with Walmart pharmacies um, and also with two large Health System, Penn Medicine, and Geisinger, last fall, seeing this moment coming, we said, let's, let's set up the biggest test that's ever been run to understand how do we nudge vaccinations. So not taking away people's power to choose, but encouraging, like sending, we tested different text messages that would encourage people. We tried everything from sort of, you know, beat the neighboring community to donate this to a, or dedicate this to a loved one or do it for the people in your life you care about um, to a really simple message that turned out to be the most effective. And that was just, uh, we have a vaccine been reserved for you or waiting for you. Um, It sort of has your name on it. And by uh, conveying that there there was something already set aside for you that your doctor's office or your pharmacist felt was appropriate for you, I think it did a few things that were powerful. One is um, it conveys sort of a recommendation and a social expectation. Um, It also conveys that there's something, it it really literally belongs to you already. There's something called the endowment effect where when something belongs to you, you actually value it more. There's also research showing that when we give someone an appointment to get a vaccine, we just say, here's a date time at a convenient location where you can get it, sort of like saying it's reserved for you, Uh, that increases vaccination rates 36% compared to just letting people schedule a a vaccine at a convenient time. So I actually think a really simple thing we we could be and should be doing based on those those studies is um, giving every American an appointment. You know, they can cancel it. They can reschedule it. But, like, take out all of the inconvenience and hassle and worry about how do I get online, how do I find it, which pharmacy has it, and, and make it clear that it's sort of the presumed um, yeah,
3: action good idea. that you'll
1: take it. As so opposed to that, what New Jersey's sort of doing.
3: New Jersey says, come down. Uh, if you take a shot in this bar, we'll give you a beer. Uh, you have a different <laughs> approach. Uh, but you know, I like yours better.
1: work, too. I, <laughs> I think we can do all of the above. You Absolutely. Know, you can have some people's defaults. Uh, shots of their appointments be scheduled at the bar if that's their favorite hangout rather than the CVS pharmacy.
3: So, (laughs) Katie, normally I look at a book uh, coming out like this and say, perfect for New Year's Eve, but this is New Year's Eve. We're beginning to come out of this pandemic at a great rate. This is a perfect time to say, okay, I'm going to change a few things now. I'm getting back to life. Uh, Katie Milkman wrote it. It's how to change the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. It's not cheerleading. There's a science behind it. Katie, thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was
3: really Uh, fun. All right. That was pretty cool. I love hearing new ways to get yourself out of a rut, but bring science into it and emotion out of it. By the way, I have a new book coming out. It's called The President and the the Freedom Fighter. It's about Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and how they saved America's soul. You can go go to BrianKillme.com or go to Amazon, and you can pre-order it now. I think it's the best one yet, and I certainly think we're ready for the message. And it really took place and takes root with both men being born coming up in America, culminating in 1865.
2: From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.